Attention, attention all personnel. It's MASHCAST. Hello and welcome to MASHCAST, the show that analyzes and celebrates episode by episode the greatest TV series of all time, MASH, which aired on CBS from 1972 to 1983. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, General Robert Iron Guts Kelly. And joining us this week in the VIP tent are Captain Entropy. Hi, Captain. Hi, Iron Guts. How are you? I'm doing great. And Major Joe Price. Hi, Joe. Hello, General. How are you today? <laughs> I'm doing great. Thank you both for being here. I really appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having us. Yeah, it's uh, it's great to be here, and it's great to to finally meet Major Joe outside of the comments thread. Absolutely. I love pairing all these MASH fans up. This has been so much fun. So we're here to talk about the Season 6 episode, The Grim Reaper. is the 11th episode from Season 6. It originally aired on November 29th. 1977 and since of course you've both been on the show before so we don't have to get into your mash histories but i do just want to ask since this is both your first appearances obviously season six we have a new character major winchester joe let me start with you like what's your overall feeling about the winchester years of mash you know uh when i was younger i didn't like winchester but after i went into the military myself i've become to have respect for winchester and with that uh i enjoy the winchester years of the show what was it about him that you didn't like? I used to think that he was just pompous and arrogant and with Lord, uh, his, uh, his attitude over everybody. But now I see him as being confident and competent and uh, expecting other people to be able to keep up with him. Fair enough. What about you, Captain? Oh, well, I think in general, I agree with Major Joe. Um, my wife would tell you that I've worked with a lot of people who were arrogant and their saving grace was that they could back it up. So, um, <laughs> I think, uh, Charles falls into that category and I really enjoy these years. I think, uh, the next few seasons, um, are, are really my favorite seasons of MASH, probably seven and eight. You can kind of feel when things start to, to wind down a little bit. I mean, they're all great, you know? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, fantastic. So I said, I'm eager to talk about this episode. Uh, I mean, we'll get into it, but this is actually one of my favorites from season six. As I mentioned, it's the Grim Reaper. It aired on November, or, uh, November 29th, 1977, written by Bert Prolutsky and directed by George Tyne. Colonel Potter, Hawkeye, and BJ are in Potter's office listening to a report by the appropriately named Colonel Bloodworth, who is telling them of an impending assault on a hill and exactly how many casualties it will result in. Hawkeye and BG find it difficult not to interrupt and mock Bloodworth because of his casualness over how many young men will be killed just to get a hill because the other side has it. Potter tells them to quiet down, but Hawkeye just can't contain himself. He belittles Bloodworth, and the meeting ends abruptly when Bloodworth has had enough. Later that day, the promised wounded arrive, but he's 77 short of the total Bloodworth promised. Hawkeye heads off to the officers' club to gloat, but it turns ugly when, after the PA announces more wounded are coming, Bloodworth smugly promises that that's the remaining 77 soldiers. Hawkeye wonders if Bloodworth shot them himself and gets so worked up, he grabs the colonel and throws him against a wall. Other members of the 477th separate them, and Hawkeye walks out. Bloodworth brings Hawkeye up on charges, which Potter, after yelling at Hawkeye for pushing Bloodworth around, says he'll try and head off. Meanwhile, Klinger is happy to talk to one of the wounded, a private danker, who is from Toledo and knows all the same haunts as Klinger, like the local dance hall and Tony Paco's. Potter meets with Bloodworth, asking him to drop the charges. Bloodworth refuses and throws in an insult to Potter for coddling his doctors in the process. He drives off, leaving Potter saying, 
Pierce shouldn't have pushed you. He should have decked you. Later that night, more wounded arrive, one of whom is Bloodworth. In a war, he lies on a table, watching Hawkeye operate on a patient. He sees Hawkeye stay calm and cool as blood shoots out of the patient's wound, hitting Hawkeye right in the face. Near morning, Bloodworth asks to speak to Hawkeye. He tells Hawkeye that he watched him perform as a doctor and was deeply impressed. He also realized how callous he was about death and how scared he was when he thought he was the one who was about to die. Bloodworth informs Hawkeye that a push in a bar just doesn't add up to all that and the charges are dropped. A few days later, Klinger shares a package from Tony Pacos sent to him by Danker with Hawkeye and BJ. They had first refused to share with the Winchester as revenge for him not sharing food had been sent to him from home, but eventually let him pull up a chair and enjoy. All right. So as I said a, a moment ago, this is one of my favorite episodes from season six. It's a kind of thing where I think both A and B plots are absolutely superb. One is very fun and the other one is uh, terrifically dramatic. And again, we'll go through it beat by beat. But overall, uh, Joe, let me start with you. What's your what's your feeling about this episode? You know, uh, like you said, I thought Bloodworth is a perfect name for a infantry officer. <laughs> and uh, I really like this episode because of. Uh, it got into a little more of the uh, dynamics, uh, not only with how the team interacts with other officers in the military, but how they interact with each other. You see uh, what the creators were probably trying to do is see there could be a romantic interest between Charles and uh, Margaret when they share a meal together. But then you can also see that towards the end of the button, they uh, show that they're willing to rib Charles, but also accept him and invite him to be part of the team. Captain, what about you? Pretty similar attitude. Um, I'm going to start with a little bit of a negative here, because uh, then ev- everything I say after that will sound great. <laughs> but I think the A-plot was actually a little weak. The The conflict between Hawkeye and Bloodworth seems a little trumped up to me, uh, at least until Hawkeye shoves him in the O-club. But, um, but the performances are outstanding. Uh, a lot of the lines are outstanding. I love the B-plot. So, And it's still mashed, so I loved it. <laughs> Fair enough. So, uh, I mean, the show opens in Potter's office as Bloodworth is talking to Hawkeye and BJ and preparing them with what's going on. And Hawkeye and BJ are doing some knitting, uh, and which is kind of like you know, just visually, you know, disrespectful of Bloodworth. He's trying to go over these, uh, these forms that he's got talking about the casualties and all the figures. And obviously they're sitting here kind of doing this sort of nonsensical thing sort of suggesting to him that they really don't want to pay attention to him. Now, um, by the way, I should mention right at the top, Bloodworth, you know, the name right on the nose there, is played by uh, Charles Aidman, who passed away in 1993. He had literally hundreds of TV credits, every show from the late 50s into the early 80s. This guy had at least one episode on. Just some of his shows were are things like The Invaders, The Wild Wild West, The FBI, Gunsmoke, Barnaby Jones, Kung Fu, The Rockford Files, Policewoman, Kojak, Eight is Enough. I mean, just went on and on and on. Uh, the one movie in his filmography that uh, jumped out at me is the obscure 1973 film Koch, which is the only film ever directed by Jack Lemmon. It stars Walter Matthau. And it was directed by Jack Lemmon and also in the cast of that film, Larry Linville, uh, strangely enough. What do you think about Bloodworth as a character? I mean, I, again, I don't want to get too specific into your backgrounds necessarily, but is this kind of guy, how cartoony is this if it is at all? Are there guys like this? There must be, right? Or not? Are there guys that are this callous about the way they talk about 
human lives? I don't I don't know. I mean, how how far out is this particular character? Uh, there are definitely some people like that uh, in my experience who are more into the science of war than they are into the humanity uh, that goes into it. You know, they uh, when we were trying to plan for an invasion of Iraq, we were setting through and figuring out, you know, we could face this many of our own casualties uh, at this point of the invasion and at this point and at this point. And fortunately, our commander was actually very caring and came down to the conclusion that the basis, best scenario is not to get shot. Yeah, I, I agree 100% with Major Joe and not just because he outranks me. Um, <laughs> he is a he is a realistic character, at least in his personality, in that he's, I mean, he's officious, he's self-satisfied, he's callous, he's very good at his job and he knows it. All of that comes across as real. And honestly, uh, Aidman's performance, I think, is outstanding. And we'll get to a couple other pieces where, where he really impressed me. You know, as you, you watch the show repeatedly, as you do when you're prepping for a podcast, uh, some, some things started to stand out. But the idea of a character who can predict the casualties in a battle came across as ridiculous to me. Now, I don't, I don't, it wasn't in Korea. I don't have the experience of the kind of set piece battles that they're talking about. And maybe they were that good, especially coming out of World War II when, you know, they, they'd hit defended hills. I don't know how many times, but there's so much chaos in warfare. It seems hard to believe. Yeah. I mean, I can't, I, I mean, I'm sorry, I know nothing about this, but I can't wrap my head around how, how could you know? How, how could he be this specific? When there's that much chaos going on in a, in a battle. I mean, how, how could you possibly have it down to the point where he even talks about that if it, if it rains, uh, expect 20 more guys to get killed. And BJ has the line about, boy, there are 20 guys tomorrow who better pray like hell that it doesn't rain. I mean, how, how was that, how is that possible to, to be able to be that scientific over something where there are so many variables? I think that, um, well, with my experience, we would always say estimate, and it would be just that estimate. But of course, you know, metric Hollywood uh, going for exact numbers. Yeah, I, I mean, the like if it was an airborne drop, then you know you've done that so many times, and maybe you know the drop zone, and you can figure okay, there's going to be ten percent minor casualties, and if it rains, there's going to be more because guys are more likely to roll their ankles or whatever. But the and and I can see where the number of casualties would go up slightly if it rained, but just the whole idea that you can predict, you know, down to I don't know plus or minus ten, which is what I, what I, what in my mind I'm thinking of when he says pinpoint accuracy, mm-hmm. just seems implausible to me. I agree. I think Charles Edmund is is terrific in this, and again, he has like a great moment near the end of the show and and stuff like, and we'll we'll get to that. But yeah, this opening scene. Uh, is wonderfully tense because, of course, Hawkeye and BJ uh, cannot hide their contempt for this guy. Uh, they're actually having like a separate conversation about the yarning, you know, about doing the yarn. Or he's like, Hawkeye's like, you want it fast? You want it good? I mean, he's they're purposely thumbing their nose at this guy. BJ is sitting on Potter's desk with his back, literally his back to, to Bloodworth. And, you know, Potter, Potter is Potter. He probably finds Bloodworth to be disgusting. But uh, because we know that he cares very much for human life, but at the same time, he's a military man and he is trying to take this seriously and he can't really allow Hawkeye and BJ to be too 
uh, disrespectful to this guy, but yet he knows he kind of really can't control these two in, in sort of the grander sense. So uh, I love that you've got sort of three sets of characters at cross purposes here. You know, you've kind of got, they're both kind of against, all three of them are sort of against Bloodworth, but then Potter's got to kind of give daggers to, to, to his doctors are kind of like, okay. And then of course, Hawkeye is the lead malcontent. BJ is always a little more, uh, a little quieter about it. And there's one point where they actually, they walk out and they, they, they threaten to walk out and even Potter sort of tries to get them to stop. And you can see that he looks frustrated at, uh, at Bloodworthing. Okay. Or whatever. And then, you know, BJ walks out on him too. And it's, it said it's, it's a terrific opening scene. And, you know, it's, is again, forgive me for asking something you guys you know, might not have a direct experience with, but like doctors, could these guys get away with this? I mean, I mean, I don't know that it's, it's a mash unit and the, you know, Colonel Potter runs it the way he sees fit. But I mean, is this kind of realistic? Could you get away with being this insolent to a, to a Colonel? Oh, no, no, <laughs> well, now with someone with that much experience and time in, and especially that big of a gap in rank from, uh, the captain's 03 to the Colonel, uh, 06. Uh, that is a high insult that would get them chewed out by anyone. Yeah, I, I agree. The, but I mean, we're all kind of accustomed to it on MASH and, right. and these guys are, they're prima donnas because they're skilled surgeons and because everyone wants them there. And this is not the only time in the series where they've pushed that armor that they carry with them, um, past the limit. And, and, and that's what they're doing here. And it's just, it's, it's, a. Uh, it's kind of adolescent foolishness, but that's part of what we turn on the show for. But regarding Colonel Potter, the, uh, I, my impression of him with Bloodworth, I mean, I think he finds Bloodworth tiresome, but he doesn't really care about this guy's attitude. He just wants the mm. information. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, he wants to know what to expect uh, as far as casualties, so he's prepared and his staff can be prepared. Right, right. I think he even has a line like that. He's like, he's like I want to know what's coming. Uh, and he just doesn't have that. The he doesn't have the stomach in him to be so, as you say, as uh, as you say, Captain, sort of almost childish about it, kind of like big about it. And again, I always find it fascinating that Hawkeye always feels the need to be the lead in this. BJ is just as you know loathing of of uh, Bloodworth, but he just doesn't feel the need to be as up in his face about it. Like, you know what I mean? Like it's beach. It's, it's Hawkeye that has all the speeches about, you know, you and your ledger and this and that. And, you know, maybe if you, if we weren't, if you stopped showing up, there wouldn't be any battles and blah, blah, blah. It's like, you want to sound like you believe that captain BJ just sort of stands there. And so he, <laughs> you know, and I always feel like I kind of like that. I sort of like that. He's as, you know, irreverent, but he just doesn't feel the need to be like the stick the finger in the eye kind of thing uh, about that. And they get, they have that little bit of a, dialogue back and forth as they're crossing the compound into the swamp about it where even bj's like you know you got a little got a little riled up there like even he's just like always kind of remarking at hawkeye like you know did you need to take it that far do we need to be that open about it and of course for hawkeye yes yeah the answer is yes well bj's just more polite i mean he, and he, <laughs> he always is I mean, up until you make him really angry and then you know it's katie bar the door right <laughs> right exactly so I do love um, BJ's facial expressions when he's sitting there uh, listening to the Colonel talk. He looks like he's as bored as can be and uh, and tired of it all. Yeah, I really good. I think they've heard this before from this from these guys like this. So yeah, they're just like, okay, all right. So they they head back to the swamp and we're in for some lighter fare here. And that Winchester has received a care package from home, and it's quite a deluxe care package. It's a 
picnic basket along with the plates and the knives and everything all strapped in. And then there is all sorts of food. There is all canned stuff. There is a uh, canned pheasant, which sounds frankly, completely disgusting. Uh, and, uh, and now of course, if you're eating mess tent food, I guess it sounds pretty good, but it just like, ugh. uh, and then there's truffles. Uh, again, all the skin, there's some soda crackers. There is, there's even some caviar, uh, that he sends over. He sends over chopped liver. Uh, so pat and some, uh, some patty de foie gras. And so they're all really enjoying that very much. And of course, BJ and Hawkeye immediately assume that, uh, they're all going to have a feast together, the three of them. And Winchester has to inform them that your, <laughs> he says that your palates are better suited to what's awaiting for you in the mess tent. And they do this bit where he gives him a little piece of liverwurst. And he's like, well, that's your reward for opening a can, which of course is what the Hawkeye helped them with. And they are Hawkeye and BJ are obviously uh, quite offended by that. And like, you're going to, I like the bit where he says, you're going to sit here and make us watch you eat. And he's like, no, that would be sadistic. I will go elsewhere. And he packs everything up and, <laughs> and it's out. <laughs> it's just Winchester being just such a, a massive, a dick to his monkeys. Um, again, none of that food sounds particularly uh, good to me, but maybe if again, you've been eating mess tent food for a couple of years, you, any of that sounds good. See, this is where I consider myself be lucky. Uh, we had contracted uh, cooks uh, when I was in Iraq, and the food was actually pretty good. Yeah, I've had I've had bad food downrange, and I've had good food downrange. So I have both experiences, but. Um, I mean, I would have tried all of that. I actually like caviar, um, especially if somebody else is paying for it. But um, <laughs> and I've eaten, I've eaten pheasant and enjoyed it. Not canned pheasant, but I did look it up. It, it's a real thing, canned pheasant. Um, yeah. So I mean, not, not like you can order and buy it, which is apparently what the Winchester family did. But but I found instructions on how to do your home canning of your pheasant. So you know, for your <laughs> apocalypse prepper. <laughs> just, oh lord yeah so i don't know if you caught the sound of it but the sound the pheasant makes when winchester slides it out of the can mm-hmm. also sounds disgusting yeah <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah, so, it, it was very wet yeah oh god so uh winchester makes his way over to margaret's tent and he offers her to to share a meal with him again which is an incredibly generous i'm guessing that a lot of this food once you open it, it's going to go bad. And so he can't eat all of it. You know what I mean? He can't eat. I mean, once the fan peasant, fan peasant, I just said that. Once the canned <laughs> peasant is open, it's going to go bad. So it's like, well, he might as well share it with, with somebody because he can't eat it all himself. So I mean, what are you going to do? So um, there's this great bit where in the, the swamp, BJ makes a, a dad joke about the, nobody knows the truffles I've seen. And that Hawkeye finds it very funny. Winchester kind of rolls his eyes. And then he tries the joke on Margaret uh, when he mentions the truffles. And he goes, you know, no one knows the truffles I've seen. And she's like, what? And I love his little aside to himself. He goes, I might have guessed. I just love that he tried to kind of like be one of the guys for a moment. And it blows up in his face. And he's just like, yeah, why did I try that? Why did I even bother trying to be funny? The way BJ would be funny. And he also pulls out a bottle of champagne. I think, is it champagne or is it wine? I think it's wine. It's, it's wine. It's So I looked yeah. this up too. Uh, Montrachet is a real uh, vintner. Really, it's an area in Côte de Bonne, France, 
that makes basically the best Chardonnay in the world. So, oh, okay. Um, so, yeah, they did their homework on this. I, I'm not really a wine, much of a wine drinker, but the way they talked this up on the sites where I looked it up, they made it sound pretty appealing. Okay. It's, it said, you said it's a 47. And so this is like 52. So at this point, it's a five-year-old bottle of wine. So, all right, pretty good. You're not bad. Again, a very uh, nice package for the Winchesters to to send over. So uh, they, they sit down to have their meal. They drink a little bit of the Chardonnay, and then they have the caviar. And then they break open the pheasant, and Winchester points out that uh, – that uh, no, you don't – oh, well, by the way, he says the caviar cannot be touched by a metal utensil, only wood. Uh, I have never had caviar, so I'm completely unfamiliar with that. That is that a rule? I guess is that the way it's supposed to be served. And of course, he brought a tongue depressor, so that, hey, that works out. And he feeds Margaret a little bit of caviar, and then they break open the pheasant, and he says, "You know, no, you don't need silverware. Some things are meant to be done by hand." And they start eating the pheasant, and then she says, "This tastes funny." Is this the way pheasant is supposed to taste? And he says, yes, it's absolutely supposed to taste like that. So they chow down on it. And, of course, that's for his indication something might be wrong when she says this tastes a little funny. But the thing I notice, of course, is this whole scene is done in two series of shots. There's a master where we get both our actors in one shot. And then there is the close-ups or the mid-shots of David Ogden Stiers eating and then Loretta Swit eating. And unlike movies and other TV shows where actors nibble at food, they are chowing down. I mean, we see the food in their mouths. I mean, there's there's like kind of like some chicken grease on their mouth. Like they both dig in and it makes me think, boy, I hope they got all this in one take because otherwise they're eating a lot of fake bird or whatever it is that they're eating here. Yeah. You know, I wondered what it was they were actually eating because Laura Swift is vegetarian. You know, that's right. I forgot about that. I didn't know that. It wouldn't have occurred to me that she was back then. But when I met her, she told me she was. That's right. Yeah, because you bought her a salad. I bought her a salad. That's right. (laughs) I completely forgot about that. that. Yes. Good catch, Major Joe. Thank you. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, yeah. I I mean, maybe she wasn't back then. But, but yeah, they're eating something. But they they are chowing down. They are not being dainty about it. So, like I said, I hope that... Director George Tyne got it all in in one, and then they were they were good. Um, so, and then they get interrupted by wounded, so they have to end the meal, and then they head out. And then we're back on the compound, and we see wounded coming in, and they are of course soldiers from Major Bloodworth, and we see uh, excuse me Colonel Bloodworth, and we see how many are going, you know, how many have got uh, severe wounds, and then he meets uh, Hawkeye meets a um, one of the wounded. A Danker, who I mentioned in the synopsis, he's played by the actor Jerry Hauser. You've seen him in a bunch of movies uh, like Slapshot, Summer 42, Magic, seems like old times. And he mentions he's got a um, he's got a helmet with a one on it. And they says, what's that about? And he says that as soon as he got off the boat, somebody came along and carved a one, a two or a three on your helmets. And the threes got sent somewhere. The twos got sent somewhere else. And the ones got basically sent to the front lines, which is how he ended up uh, getting wounded. And Hawkeye assures him that, uh, you know, you're really healthy. Don't worry. You're fine. And he's, you know, he says, you know, you're going to be, you're going to be okay, which is confusing because as we learned soon after Danker gets sent home, which I don't really understand because supposedly he's not injured that badly. I would think he would just get sent back, but maybe Hawkeye was being nice to him or something saying like, the wound is severe enough. He's going to get sent home, but it's not life threatening. I guess that is what it is. That's my yeah. assumption too. 
Yeah, I, I, mine too. I was going to say the, I, I could see like, you know, let's say he got shot in the leg and it didn't hit a major artery, but it broke his leg. I mean, that's going to be a long recuperation. So, uh, I can see, uh, um, exactly what, uh, what you said, Rob, that it could be uh, an injury severe enough that he's no good for combat, but he's going to be able to recover fully. So is that the way it would work? I always assumed, again, I keep, I keep saying, forgive my ignorance, but I just feel so ill-informed Ill- 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 about this stuff. I always assumed that you would only be sent home unless, like, you were debilitated. Like, like obviously, you could be wounded w- severely enough. It wouldn't kill you, but you were sent home. But he, but something like that, where it would just you could be wounded in a way that the recuperation time would be so long that you would be basically considered... It wouldn't be worth keeping you around. That's how it would work. Yeah, especially with a broken bone, because uh, with that you become more of a liability because you won't be able to move around and uh, get into safe spaces when you get attacked uh, or effectively maneuver to uh, return fire. Okay, all right. I didn't know that. I've always wondered why Danker got to be sent home and beat you, and Hawkeye's like, "Oh, you're you know you're so healthy, you have to wait." Like, well, why does he get to go down? Okay, now I understand. Fantastic. There's a certain amount of athleticism that's required for combat. And if you think about sports, you'd see a guy who gets an injury and he's out for the season. Mm. Well, you know, college athlete, maybe he can still attend class. He's fine for a lot of things. He just can't run full speed, you know, down the field and have somebody hit him. I think this is kind of similar. They would, but they would send the guy home for that. They wouldn't rotate him into something like you said that doesn't require such physicality. Not in a situation where the front lines can change uh, so quickly, you know, especially when they bug out or uh, and the line moves on them. Okay. All right. Yeah. Well, now now I've I've seen like um, I remember being at Bagram Air Base in Afghanistan uh, and I was co-located with some guys from 75th Ranger Regiment, which is very impressive outfit. And the there was a, a young man who was on guard duty in our little compound inside the larger camp. And he was clearly busted up. He had, you know, medical tape and splinting that went from his shoulder down to his hand on one, on one arm. And I just asked him when I saw him, I said, Hey man, what happened? And I was expecting some glorious combat story. He slipped and fell on the ice. (laughs) So, you know, there are cases where you can find, okay, there is duty that this guy can do. But these are draftees. They've been trained for one thing. I mean, and Major Joe and I, fortunately, are too young to have seen that era. But but I I, I have been under the impression and maybe MASH influenced that, that that uh, that a lot of folks, they just said, look, you, you know, you're going home. Wow. OK. All right. I've, I've literally been wondering about this for the 40 years I've been watching this episode. So now I know. So thank you both very much. Uh, so. Uh, in surgery, uh, we see, you know, they're tending to the wounded and we find out that obviously something has gone very wrong because Margaret is feeling sick. She talks about she because we're probably getting botulism. And of course, Winchester doesn't want to hear about it. He says, Major, I assure you we're not ill. She's like, why are you whiter than your mask? I tell you that bird was rotten. I love the way she's like, we ate a rotten bird. I love how strident she is about it. And then Winchester has a great retort. He says, Major, can we terminate this nauseating discussion and get back to this man's bowel? (laughs) Probably not helping. (laughs) You know, I think that a sick Margaret is as good as a drunk Margaret. (laughs) (laughs) 
She could do so much. You know, these these actors have to, these actors specifically, right? The MASH actors, they had to get such a, there's, we, we talk about in other episodes, right? Uh, the doctors, the doctors of MASH, their skills sharpen because through re- repetition, you know, they, I mean, they've, they've performed 10 times as many surgeries as any doctor at home. And so therefore they've gotten fast and they've learned things. And I think about that in the same way that like for a large chunk of MASH's run, these actors had to learn to, I mean, yeah, they're speaking their lines, but they had to emote with just their eyes. They have hit, they have two thirds of their face covered up. And that is a like, you know, acting with one hand tied behind your back. And a lot of other shows didn't have that. They don't have that, that limitation, but everybody here had to learn. And yeah, I agree. I love when Margaret is, we ate a rotten bird. Like she's so, so she's mad and she's frustrated that he's not listening to her. Uh, and then of course, as soon as Winchester mentions this man's bowels, he takes a header right onto the floor. <laughs> so, so horribly sick. So, uh, it's absolutely uh, fantastic. And I do, whoever the, um, Makeup people where they do a great job where, where when they pull Winchester up off the floor, like he is beat red. Like he looks like he's actually like ready to explode or something. And it's just, it's a great detail. And it's, you know, and Margaret does a bunch of uh, hiccuping and stuff. And BJ says, you're looking a little green around the gills yourself. And, you know, she's like, okay. And then she keeps hiccuping and stuff because obviously something is very, very wrong. So it's just, it's an absolutely terrific sequence of trying to work through when, uh, you're, you know, horribly, horribly ill. Yeah. Oh, and don't forget, uh, poor Father Mulcahy looking down. Oh, are you okay, Major Winchester? <laughs> <laughs> I think it, yeah. Margaret. I think it's Potter. He's like sweet Nefertiti or something. Is some big yeah. exhortation when he says that. Um. So yeah, Winchester's out for the count. So then uh, back in the uh, scrub room, or actually not the scrub room. It's kind of the uh, whatever the the post op room a little bit where. Potter and Hawkeye and BJ are taking off their scrubs. Potter wants to get a drink, but no, Hawkeye insists on finding Bloodworth and wants him to gloat. He wants to gloat about it. And Potter kind of tells him, please don't do that. And of course, Hawkeye isn't going to listen to do that. So he heads off to the O Club and he finds Bloodworth and he rubs it in where he says, uh, you know, hey, you're you're a bunch of people short. You're, you're in the Battle for Hill 403. Uh, he says 77 soldiers refuse to get hit just to pinpoint your accuracy. And he's incredibly happy about it and very smug about it. And he's rubbing it in Bloodworth's face. And then there's news. Uh, more choppers are arriving. And Bloodworth says, you know, those are the they're the 77. And Hawkeye gets so disgusted where he says, you know, what'd you do? Shoot him yourself, which is a really tough line. It's a, t- you know, just to hear BJ, I keep doing that just to hear Hawkeye say that about these, that disgusted with this guy uh, that he would do that, be able to talk to him like that. And Bloodworth is having none of it. Bloodworth is kind of gloating about it. And as I mentioned, in tonight, it gets to the point where Hawkeye actually grabs Bloodworth by the shirt and tosses him onto a, a wall, tosses him onto the, the far wall of the, O Club and the other members in the uh, O Club have to separate them and they push Hawkeye out of the room. Now, as I mentioned earlier in the opening scene, I mean, there's zero way a captain's getting away with this, right? That, that you're, ju- you're just done at this point? Oh, absolutely. 
Yeah. It, uh, yeah. I, I agree a hundred percent. The, but before I cut off major Joe, I'm going to go on for a bit about this scene, but I, but I, I want to make sure I'm taking my turns. Did you have more you wanted to say about it? Uh, yeah, I was going to say, uh, the colonel actually um, reacted in a uh, more civilized way, you know, not throwing a punch or anything back at Hawkeye, just taking it and letting it roll and deciding he's going to take action later on uh, through legal means. He does warn him. He says, let go of me, Captain. Like, he does give Hawkeye the opportunity to settle down, but it doesn't work. Yeah, so some things about Hawkeye and some things about Bloodworth. The Hawkeye um, in the, the, the little dressing room area where he's bragging about the fact that, that they had lower casualty numbers than Bloodworth expected. He says, we beat Bloodworth by 77 healthies. I mean, you know, he doesn't deserve any credit for that. And, and the MASH doesn't deserve any. Like, the officers and NCOs who were leading those men might deserve some credit. It might be dumb luck. But Hawkeye didn't do anything to make mm. them be less casualties. And, and it's just funny. Like, he's he's the champion of life all by himself. So this is really like a contest of arrogance. Then, um, then in the O Club, it occurred to me that like when Hawkeye is, is gloating to Bloodworth, Bloodworth doesn't buy that he was off initially. He keeps questioning it. Really? You know, seven, <laughs> uh, 77 off, huh? Like he's just, he's not, he's so confident in himself that, that he isn't accepting it yet. And then, uh, the line you called out where he says, let go of me, Captain, he's actually laughing a little bit as he says it. And it is just what Major Joe said about, like, he's looking ahead, like, there's there's no way this ends well for you. Why would you do this? <laughs> and, and and then the then my favorite part, like my my biggest laugh in the whole episode. And I mean, it was it was a good episode, but the uh, but I just laughed out loud when the enlisted men around Hawkeye instantly pop up and, and move him away from Bloodworth and out of the building. That was, that was perfect. That was the perfect NCO moment to me. And and I have, I have had NCOs help me be a less stupid officer. And I, I appreciated <laughs> them getting the, the spotlight there. <laughs> That's a nice thing to say about NCOs. Yeah, it, it is really yeah, nice that they all step in and help them like that. You know, like Nurse Kelly and some of the other people, like they see that like, oh boy, Hawkeye, you are really going over the line. So I love, I love that it's, uh, the, it's none of our regulars that do it. I kind of like they give that moment to the, you know, for lack of a better term, background characters. I think that's nice that they, they do. It's not BJ. It's not, you know what I mean? I think that's kind of cool. They kind of like are a little more democratic about it. Yes, definitely. And that's who it would be, I think. Yeah, it's a, I think it's a terrific scene. And I, I'm glad you pointed out where that Bloodworth is laughing a little bit because, yeah, I think that is. He knows you are in so much trouble just by, <laughs> <laughs> just for grabbing me. And I'm trying to help you, you idiot. Uh, and it doesn't work. Uh, before we continue, there's one thing I don't get though with the, uh, scene in the bar. Hawkeye still has on his bloody apron, uh, from surgery. He never took it off. And you figure that he would, uh, be sure to take something like that off right away. But he walks around camp with a with a bloody apron on. Yeah, and I don't think we've ever seen that before. And and you would think he'd take it off as a hygiene thing. But, but so I was thinking about that. I wonder if they were just trying to emphasize that he came straight from surgery. I think so. It is it, it, it is a little awkward that he literally would like what walk across the compound with his his bloody surgical skills. Yeah, it, I mean, would you want somebody? 
caked in blood sitting at the bar drinking a beer. <laughs> like, I think you really wouldn't want that. Uh, I mean, he's, he's a captain. He's one of the higher people up in the camp. So, you know, it's not like Igor's going to tell him, but yeah, it is a little strange that he's like, he's literally walking in with blood on his smock. Like, uh, okay. Uh, <laughs> that's the, uh, the end of the act break. And then when we come back, I said, the Hawkeye's getting dressed down by Colonel Potter, which is the second time this season that Hawkeye is getting yelled at by Colonel Potter. He did that happened in Fallen Idol where he yells, uh, where he, you know, leaves the surgery, uh, because he was hung over and here he's getting yelled at. So Potter's doing a lot of, uh, of riding herd on Hawkeye this season. Hawkeye's really pushing the limits of, of some things from previous seasons. And, you know, he talks about, I might have pushed him, shoved him, but the wall hit him. And Potter is trying to, you know, explain to him, you know, you cannot do this. You cannot go around pushing, you know, officers around. And then he tries to kind of make a sub point where he says, you go on and on about man's insensitivity to man. And then you push a guy, you know, so he's just kind of coming at it from both angles of like, you know, he says, and he said, Blubber, this isn't kidding. Neither am I. You deserve a court martial. This is the U.S. Army. You don't push ranking officers around. And Hawkeye tries to defend himself. And Potter's like, that's enough, Captain. And then he finally kind of softens a little and he says, Hawkeye, I'll talk to Bloodworth. Maybe I convince how desperately we need surgeons, even stupid ones. And Hawkeye just kind of, okay, thanks, Dad. And he walks out. And so, yeah, I mean, if you're Potter, Hawkeye's really put you in a damn bind here. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, that scene shows what a great commander uh, that Potter is. He took a moment, he chewed ass, and then he uh, let up and said, hey, listen, okay, you know you screwed up. I'm going to see what I can do now for you. Yeah, and he's 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 looking out for his people and his mission at the same time. He wants to take care of Hawkeye, but even more than that, he needs to take care of the wounded. And 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 Hawkeye is essential to that. So yeah, I, I, I didn't think about that, but you're right. He switches from from correcting to focusing on solving the problem immediately. And I, and I love his line. I'm gonna I'm gonna say the whole line. You rave against violence and insi- insensitivity, and then to prove your point, you attack a man. <laughs> so good, <laughs> just so good. I've said in previous episodes. I mean, I think Sidney Friedman is you know his own way the show's greatest creation because he's just such a unique character. But he only appeared, of course, you know, once a season, twice a season. We didn't get to know him as well. But in terms of as a regular. Colonel Potter is the show's greatest creation. You know, it really is. And it's so perfectly cast that it's the kind of thing where, yeah, I could have watched. In fact, um, Harry Morgan in uh, Susie Coulter's Complete Book of MASH gave an interview and talked about the sort of ins and outs of the show wrapping up. And they said it was really the impetus of, as he put it, Alan and Mike and Loretta and David who said they had had enough. And he said, but for me, I could have kept going forever with that part. It was that kind of part. And I think there was something about that, that, yeah, he just fit that role so perfectly. And it's just such a wonderfully warm character, but yet steely eyed <laughs> and capable that, yeah, you could have just watched Colonel Potter for like 20 seasons of MASH had they gone that long. Yeah. He's my favorite character. He's fantastic. So, uh, then we're back in uh, post-op, and now we're finally getting a little bit of break from the the uh, Bloodworth plot, where we have Klinger talks to Danker. We find out Danker is from Toledo, and they have this whole conversation. Klinger, is, of course, is absolutely in love with uh, getting to somebody from his hometown, and he says, "When were you there?" 
two weeks ago. Two weeks ago. When was the last time you had a Paco Hungarian hot dog? Three days. I knew it. I could smell it on your breath. Uh, you had mustard, chili, and hot peppers. Amazing. Not to this nose. And <laughs> it's, it's an absolutely fantastic scene. And they talk about where they came from. Klinger says, I was from Michigan and Galena. You made it out alive? Yeah, I took my basic training at LaGrange Pool Hall. Now, I have no, I didn't do research for this. I should have. I have no idea if any of these things are real. I'm assuming they are. I assume these are all real Toledo locations that they're they did, but it real. sounds real. Oh, they are, they are real. Yeah, I looked them up. The, so, um, uh, the Trianon, there, there was a, a, a dance hall called Trianon in multiple cities. Um, some people say they were connected. Some people say they weren't. Um, the one in Toledo was torn down in 54, but Klinger was able to get back home before, before it went away. And probably, you know, before aftermath. And let's see, the, the pool hall in LaGrange, nobody knows where it was, but like or the, on LaGrange street, nobody knows exactly where it was, but it's referenced by other people besides Mash. Even, even the, the song he sings later is real. The, um, oh, right. Yeah. 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 And so he talks about dancing the jitterbug with Agnes Gomes. I, I would bet money Agnes Gomes is real. Oh, yeah. I bet that's a real name from somebody's Bert Perlusky's past or something. It's too specific a name. Got it to be made up, you know. Uh, and it's a it's a wonderful. And they talk about that, like, after they would go dancing, they would go out on the veranda and watch the kids bust windshields. Which is, <laughs> I never got caught. Yeah, he never got caught. Yeah. <laughs> It's a wonderful scene. It's really sweet. It's Klinger is just so in love with this touch from from his hometown, and and uh, somehow Danker even has a book of matches from the Trianon in his pocket of his jammies. I don't even know how he would that would even happen. I, I managed to hold on to them that whole time, but he managed to. And it's it's really really sweet. It's like you know they've always established how much. Klinger loves Toledo, how much he is a, a child of that era, place that he lived. It's so much a part of him. And it's just a great, I would imagine, you know, th- that you're feeling so far away from home and then meeting someone who is from your neck of the woods. Yeah, it's got to be really, really exciting. I mean, you guys either have that experience. You run into somebody when you were serving that happened to be from the ex- exact same neighborhood that you were from? Uh, not while I was serving, but recently I had a... Uh a contractor who was doing some work for me and uh, she uh, went to a high school that I knew and her brother went to the same high school I did. And I looked him up in the yearbook and sure enough, he was in it. Wow. So yeah, I have, I've run into somebody I went to high school with actually downrange. I was in the, in the weight room at the gym at IED air base. And I'm on, I don't know if I was on the bench or the squat rack or what I was on something. And somebody slaps his hand on his shoulder like he's about to have words with me and like from behind. And I'm thinking, Oh, I've, you know, I've ticked somebody off. I took too long on this or something. And I get ready to turn around and have a confrontation. And it was a guy who was a year behind me in high school. And he's a a boom operator on, on a KC-135 tanker. Now he's, his job is to pass gas to planes. Um, So that was pretty awesome. And let's see with the, the people I work with now, um, I know one instructor who's a retired Army 06, who uh, um, he's a few years older than I am, but uh, he was he lived close enough to me growing up 
that I've dated girls from his high school. And there's a, a Navy enlisted person I work with who is significantly younger than I am, but she grew up about um, probably 20 miles from me. Like every time I go home uh, to see my, my dad and my brother and his family, I pass the road that goes to her hometown. So, and I always tell her about it when I come back. <laughs> um, just because it's self-deprecating, I'll, I'll mention this. This, uh, this young sailor, she saw me wearing an Alabama shirt and she asked me if I was from Alabama or just a fan of the team. And I said I was from Alabama and I told her what town I grew up in. And we're standing there in the hall and she starts laughing. And I was really feeling called out. And I said, why, what, what, why are you laughing at the, at the name of my hometown? And she said, I've been there. It is a little country town. And that was all she would say. <laughs> <laughs> there is something, you know, there is something quite charming about it, knowing you have that same background with a complete stranger like that. Um, so out in the compound, uh, Bloodworth is getting ready to leave. Potter stops him and he, so I says, you know, look, uh, you know, I want to talk about Pierce and Bloodbird says, save it for the, uh, save it for the trial. And then Potter kind of slips and he says, look, I want you to drop the charges. And Bloodworth catches that. He goes, you want, because of course, you know, like, who are you to tell me to do that? You know, I mean, yeah, they're both colonels, but he doesn't have any right to, you know, to, to sort of order me. You don't have any right to order me around. Potter, Potter, uh, Potter says, Pierce is the best surgeon I've got. What goods are going to do to lock him up where he's no use to anyone? And that's where sort of, um, Bloodworth has had enough where he says, if you discipline your men instead of coddling them, by the way, I love the way Aidman, Charles Aidman says that coddling them. Uh, it's a very Jersey Scott as Patton kind of line read. You know, you, they would have known your hothead would have known better to attack, attack, attack a superior officer. And he says, uh, and then, and then Potter, of course, is getting frustrated, and he says, "Bloodworth, there's nothing you can teach me about discipline or running a mash." Uh, and then he says, "I want." He says it again, and then we get Bloodworth has that kind of flinches a little, and then Potter softens, and he says, "I'd like you. I'd like the man clear to the charges." And he says, "Well, then get him a good lawyer," and he takes off. And terrific scene between these two. I love that Potter has kind of had enough of this guy. That he's just being kind of so one note about it, but at the same time, I would imagine that if you're Bloodworth, you're like, well, you're not, you know, you keep your guys under line under control better, and this wouldn't happen. So this is just a terrific scene between these two. Oh yeah, and you can tell Potter's trying to um, speak to him as equals, and also keep his temper in check at the same time. Yeah, and it's it's interesting to me that like, you know, Potter is an equal uh, of Bloodworth and their peers. And he starts trying to order him like he's maybe he's gotten too used to being the ranking guy on the camp. But <laughs> he, he's always a little bit more pushy with line officers than I would expect a medical officer to be. But I think I've always excused that as being a a, a, a product of him having served in cavalry in combat. And, you know, he wears those great cavalry boots that he points out later in the episode and the cavalry hat. And he's like, it's. It's in everybody's face all the time. I'm not just a doctor. Right. Yeah. It's a terrific, terrific scene between these two. I just, I get, I love that when he says it the second time where he slips and he says, I want, and you see Bloodworth just, just this little idea. Obviously nobody could see it, but doing this little twitch of like, Hey, you know, like enough with that. 
you know, and then he drives away and uh, Potter says to nobody in particular, Pierce shouldn't have pushed you. He should have decked you. And then he looks around and makes sure nobody heard him say that. It's just a great, great comedy button on the scene of like, oh, gee, yeah, I can't have anybody hear me say that. So <laughs> it's a great way to end the end the moment. Oh, yeah, indeed. Um, one little aside I must point out for anybody watching the episode uh, over Potter's shoulder when he's talking to Bloodworth in the uh, not not the scene after Bloodworth drives away, but in the scene where they're both standing there behind Colonel Potter. You see some members of the 477th uh, just doing, I don't know, like they're playing football or something or kind of throwing a ball around. We see a nurse and we see a couple of people kind of walk by. And then there is another guy who is shirtless and this guy is built like a superhero. I don't know who this guy is. I don't know if he's just an extra and they cast him for that reason or what, but I mean, it's almost a little distracting because I'm like, good Lord. What, what, when did they, how did, how did Henry Cavill show up in this episode? Like this guy is absolutely (laughs) ridiculous. And I'm guessing that like when they're figuring out, I don't know if that's the work of the director or the second unit director who decides those things, but I was just kind of wondering like, when they decide, cause ever all the other guys are wearing their fatigues, except this guy's got his shirt off. And I almost wonder, like, when they cast him, did they see this guy and they're like, Oh yeah, get this, get, get, have this guy take his shirt off. Cause I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous. You don't really get to see that many well-built people at the 477, but man, that guy looks like he just looks like a superhero. It's just, um, so we cut to later on that night, Hawkeye and BJ are in the swamp. BJ is, uh, not being super helpful with Hawkeye he's kind of like yeah you did a really stupid thing uh <laughs> and uh you know <laughs> you know he's absolutely not not he's not giving Hawkeye like any quarter at all about you know what did you do and Hawkeye says isn't there some sort of thing about justifiable pushing or anything like that it's again he well, just sort of knows he's screwed what's BJ supposed to say <laughs> you know yeah you know points out well, what a good friendship they have BJ's like dude you screwed up you know it I know it. Let me have my drink in peace. <laughs> yeah. <Yep>. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of like, can I, <laughs> I got my own problems. He <laughs> just sit here and stop whining about this. Um, so then Klinger shows up and he brings, uh, his, uh, his, uh, a flight jacket that a, a soldier, uh, was wearing and, uh, BJ saved his life. And as a reward, he wants BJ to have it. So Klinger is delivering it. Klinger starts to cry when he's get the mention of Danker and he mentions that song about in old weather, we all stick together. Uh, and it's in old Toledo, T O L E D O. So it's yeah. this old timey song. I'm completely unfamiliar with it, but as you, you said, it's a real song and it sounds like a real song. Yeah. yeah. It's called We're Strong for Toledo. Yeah. Written by Joe Murphy, which is, sounds almost as much of an alias as Rob Kelly. <laughs> I assure you, this is my real name, guys. I should have used a fa- <laughs> I should have called myself the irredeemable Rob or something, but that was taken. <laughs> so, um, Winchester shows up and he wants to know about the jacket. And he's like, is that the pilot that I operated on? And, uh, BJ points out, I operated on him. You were under him. And Winchester's like, just a moment. And I love that, uh, David Ogden Styers puts up his hand like he's, <laughs> like he's in a courtroom or something. Just a moment. I was the physician of record. Therefore, any remuneration is mine. And they start fighting back and forth about the, the jacket. And, uh, <laughs> it's very childish. They go back and forth about the stupid jacket. 
they decide they're going to go have Colonel Potter settle this. Winchester heads out, and then it's BJ's turn to whine about a problem where he says, I don't care if he goes to MacArthur, he's not getting that jacket, which leads Hawkeye to say, will you shut up about the stupid jacket? That's <laughs> yeah. a great moment to these two. Like, Hawkeye's you're both annoying each it. other. Yeah, no, it, and um, and what's funny to me about it is they make it very clear that it's not the principle of the thing. They just both want the jacket. <laughs> I love how childish they get so quickly. It's really fantastic. Two grown men just absolutely, I want this jacket. Uh, we then cut to uh, Colonel Potter's tent. He is reading a Zane Grey book, Ride the Man Down, which uh, did not exist in the early 1950s. It's a, no, it's a, it, come, it came on the, uh, the same route that uh, uh, Radar's issues of the Avengers and Spider-Man came from, where it just it's absolutely out of time. Uh, Potter is... Zane didn't write it. What'd you say? And Zane Grey didn't write it. It's another writer. Oh, really? I didn't even notice. Oh, that's funny. Oh, because he even says, you interrupted a Zane Grey gunfight. Oh, that's funny. I didn't even know that. Yeah, um, they, they, so I looked that up. They made a movie out of it, too, but it, but it's not Zane Grey. Anyway. Oh. <laughs> Potter's forgetting who he's reading. So yeah. uh, so Winchester, you know, is, is making his case, and I love Potter has that line. See these boots? Picture them kicking you across the compound. <laughs> and he even does a little hand gesture. BJ shows up and he says, oh, you know, I don't want anything this childish as a jacket to get between me and Charles. You can have it. Why don't you try it on for it? And he puts it on and it's too small. And he realizes that uh, as Winchester notices, BJ obviously tried it on outside and he knew it didn't fit. And Winchester and, and uh, BJ being of relative similar height realizes I could fit either one of them. And Winchester says it's only for it's only going to fit for a tiny little person. Potter's like, you mean like me? And he's like, yeah, no, not exactly like you, sir. And he realizes that <laughs> he's insulting Colonel Potter. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so Potter ends up with a nice jacket. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, so Winchester, uh, calls him a pipsqueak. Pipsqueak, so right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's quick to catch himself like, oh, not exactly like you, sir. <laughs> It's a shame we never see the jacket again. I don't think we ever seen Colonel Potter wear it. Uh, no, I, I agree. yeah, I think those flight jackets were great, and I mean those are and those are still sought after things in the Air Force. Um, so yeah, I would have, I I would have thought it was really cool to see him in that. And he's got other gear that became part of continuity, like I mean, like even Sophie in the saddle, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I always thought flight jackets were really cool looking. You know, just really, really sharp and distinctive and stylish. So, yeah, I always thought they were. I, I'm guessing those are the leather and wool. I'm guessing the collar is wool and the rest of the jacket is leather. It seems like that's yes. what they're made from. Uh, yeah, and the wools. I mean, that's back before they had nicely heated aircraft at altitude. I mean, there was heat, but not like there is now. So, uh, the wool is important. I would guess so. My father uh, served in the Navy for three years and he. Uh, has told me many stories about being in planes where it was god awful cold. <laughs> He's yeah. talked talked about that. So yeah, yes, that that would make sense. So wounded arrive, they go onto the bus and they see that one of the wounded is Bloodworth. And uh, Potter says, you know, what's wrong? And he says, Hill four Hill four o three fell on me. And Hawkeye comes and checks on him, and and Bloodworth says, must be gratifying to you, Pierce, the Grim Reaper on his own list. And Hawkeye is just kind of doesn't really give him much of a reaction. And he says, so they bring him in. We're into 
the OR. We see that uh, Winchester is working on Bloodworth, and he watches. He's he's uh, before he gets uh, put under. Uh, he is able to watch Hawkeye perform uh, this amazing feat of surgery, where something goes horribly sort of wrong. We see there's like a blood pumper, the the bit of shrapnel hits, and it sprays Hawkeye uh, across the face, and even makes a joke about. He thought he had everything under control, but Old Faithful tells him that there's still a bleeder. And, you know, we just see uh, Bloodworth watching this. We don't really exactly know what Bloodworth's reaction is, but we know that he's seeing every bit of it and watching Hawkeye perform this I mean, and staying so completely cool. And I do love that, you know, leading up to this moment, Winchester is kind of insulting Hawkeye. And he even says to Bloodworth, we'll have you pressing charges in no time. And then in the middle of all that, as the blood is spraying, and it's really quite grotesque, we see that uh, Alan Alda gets kind of covered in this blood spray. Winchester immediately pops in. He says, you need some help? And Hawkeye says, no, it's under control. And I love that little moment. I love that, you know, yeah, Winchester's being a dick, and he's poking at Hawkeye. But in the moment where it counts, he drops all that, and he's, you know, do you need some help? I just think that's a terrific little bit. Oh, yeah, agreed. You know, uh it shows that Winchester does have his moments where he can be caring and uh, actually not uh, an ass. Yeah, and nothing's going to get in the way of of the patients and uh, and whether or not he'd really be happy if uh, if Hawkeye was carted off to the Hooskow, I don't know, but I know he's enjoying watching him twist. Yeah, it's a really it's a great great scene. Um, so then we're back in post op. Hawkeye has been up all night. He's talking to Nurse Kelly for a moment. She even says you should get some sleep. And Bloodworth calls him over and Hawkeye is just kind of not taking any of it seriously. He says, you know, you, you're quite the pistol. And he says, the nurse asks you about your work. You make a joke. You take a piece of shrapnel out of a kid's chest. You make a joke. Hawkeye says, hopefully not the same joke. Bloodworth says, well, there you go again. And they have this little conversation and Bloodworth talks about laying next to a patient who died. And he said, I heard the rattle. I thought I was next. I'll never forget it. And he finally then says, you know, Hawkeye or Pierce, he doesn't call him Hawkeye, obviously. He says, Pierce, a push in a bar uh, just doesn't add up to all that. So he's dropping the charges. And this is nice because, you know, the, there's the um, episode from season four, uh, the Of Moose and Men episode, where Hawkeye runs afoul of that other colonel who is so disgusted with Hawkeye's supposed lack of military uh, uh, preparedness or not you know, his military officiousness that he's going to press charges. And it's only because kind of Potter talks him out of it that he, that uh, Hawkeye gets away with it. But I love that this is different. It's, it's a similar plot, but has a different conclusion of that it's Bloodworth has a transformative experience out there and realizes why am I doing this? And, he stands down. So I think it's a nice inversion of that similar plot. And it's wonderfully delivered by Charles Aidman. I, I absolutely agree. It was a terrific performance by Charles Aidman. Um, I, I really liked his line delivery when he said, I know I've spent the last 48 hours watching you when, when Hawkeye is talking about how, uh, um, you know, this is how this joking is how he copes. And, um, and when he talked about how he was used to screaming he just wasn't used to it coming from him. Uh, I enjoyed that also. So I, I I wish Hawkeye had said thank you and admitted he was at fault, but I guess mm. that might have been a bridge too far. But 
Um, but what's funny, you, I, I didn't think about it till you mentioned of Moose and Men, but comparing the two situations, Hawkeye was more at fault in this one. And the Colonel, and it's not, I mean, it's not like he thinks Hawkeye was right to sh- push him. He just gets a dose of perspective. And it is interesting to see his reaction. Yeah. And, and Hawkeye even mentioned that you know, he makes jokes because otherwise, you know, he loses his mind other, uh, if he didn't. And then that helps uh, settle down the Colonel Budworth and makes him uh, also realize that Hawkeye is a really talented surgeon and the unit needs him. Yeah. It's just terrific. I just think it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful moment. And it really, I mean, not the Alan Alda is always great and duh, you know, but uh, it's always nice when you say, you can kind of hand things to the guest actor and the guest actor can just knock it out of the park. And so there's just something about the way Charles Aidman delivers it. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't overdo it. I mean, I guess the hallmark of a good actor, but just the lines about, I heard the death rattle. I thought I was next. Like that, you, you know, that, that's pretty, pretty dramatic stuff. And that could be delivered in a way that's a little too much or a little, I don't know, a little off, but Aidman really handles it. Just something about where you just, you, he puts you there in that moment of like, geez, I've, I've, I've written off guys on my chart as if they're just numbers. And here I am laying here. And I feel like that. And the, just the idea that like the death rattle as a, the death rattle as like a thing that, you know, I don't want to like spend too much time on this because it's just one line in a show, but the idea of like the death rattle being a thing that like travels from person to person kind of is an interesting concept to me. You know, like this guy died and the thing that put his lights out might move on to me next is an interesting idea. And I've never heard, quite heard it put like that. Yeah. I think Richard Pryor had a, um, a line after his, whether it was after one of his heart attacks or after his uh, flambe incident or something, he talked about being in the hospital and the guy in the room next to him dying and him thinking um, that, you know, uh, I, I think the way he put it was God knows mathematics. And <laughs> you know, what if he goes one number up? <laughs> um, so uh, like I said, it's just really, really terrific scene and then potter shows up of course not knowing about any of this and figures that he is going to talk bloodworth out of it and you know he says you know if we proceed with this course round, they're in for a hell of a fight and hawkeye tries to stop him and <laughs> potter's like son i'll handle this <laughs> just kind of puts and i love the uh kind of groucho marxy and maybe more jack benny kind of thing of hawkeye just puts his arm on the kind of the bracket of the bed and puts his hand in his pocket, like, all right, I'm just gonna, you know, Potter's wound up. I'm not gonna stop him. So we'll just let him, just let him do his bit. And, uh, you know, blood, blood, where it's like the charges are dropped and he keeps going. No matter how dim or repulsive is worth weight and gold, they're dropped. Water dropped. The charges against Pierce. Oh, they are. Well, see, <laughs> Potter thinks. You know what I can do? <laughs> <laughs> He's so proud. I love that his chest is puffed up too. Uh, yeah, he's this guy like they are cowboy. He calls him cowboy. Potter's just so proud of himself. Just a terrific, terrific way to wrap up that scene. And so that's the end of the, the, uh, the Grim Reaper part of the show. And so I said, I think it's just an absolutely terrific way to wrap up the, that, that main plot of the, uh, the show. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Definitely. Go ahead, Major Joe. I'm oh, sorry. Thanks. I so, said, yeah, definitely. 
And uh, like you said, I love how um, oblivious Potter was to it. I think that he solved the whole thing himself. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. I love it. Um, and so then we come back for the uh, the button scene and queuing up the kind of dovetailing the B and C plots where we find out that Danker has sent Klinger a care package. And boy, that, you know, again, that Danker, good guy, you know, uh, mm-hmm. and he, he sends Klinger the giant box of Hungarian hot dogs, the Prada Toledo, and he sends him relish and all sorts of stuff. I mean, it just absolutely. And they're sitting, they've, they're, they're cooking the hot dogs over the, uh, the, the, gla- the, um, you know, the, the, the gas stove that they have. And there is something about this scene as directed by George Tyne. And I can't even put my finger on it, but the way it's framed by the fact that we're kind of the, the fourth wall of the swamp obviously is never there, but like it, the swamp looks bigger than it normally does. I think that our actors are kind of further out from the back part of the wall than we normally be, but there's something about the way this is lit. And the fire going, I can almost smell the hot dogs. This is so evocative of what this is like. And even though I've been a vegetarian for a quarter century, hot dogs smell really good when they're cooking. And so there's something about the scene where it's like, I can, I can almost taste them. And the way that Alan Alda and Mike Frown, Jimmy Farr are selling it, that they are just, this is like the most delicious meal they've ever had. There's something so wonderfully powerful about this end scene. Yeah, you know, um, the way they're raving about it, uh, you know, it's not the mess tent food, and it's a little bit of home that Klinger gets to share with them, which, by the way, you can actually order from uh, the actual Tony Pacos uh, and have the food sent to your house. I did not. I don't think I knew that. Yes. <laughs> Unfortunately, they won't ship up to where I'm at, but they will ship to uh, the or 48. Okay. Interesting. I wonder if they, I'll have to look and see if they have like some vegetarian equivalent for me or something. I would just love to get a package of Tony Paco. I do have a, uh, a glass Tony Paco's mug courtesy of, uh, fellow Mashcast guest Russell Burbage, who was kind enough to send it to me. And I have it on my desk, uh, in the other room with the big Tony Paco's logo on it. So they're chowing down on the hot dogs. Winchester walks in and he says, what is that tantalizing odor? Cause again, imagine. Uh, at the 477, cooking hot dogs must just smell so good. It's kind of amazing they don't have half the staff uh, <laughs> you know, knocking at the door to, to, to find out what's going on. They ask Winchester to open a jar, uh, and then he, he manages to do it, and they give him his reward, which is a tiny little piece of a hot dog, which is their revenge for Winchester being so greedy about his food earlier on in the scene, and it's a great way to Again, there's, the scene's going to go on, but it really is wonderfully cruel of them that they have this whole hot dog, and then they just cut off this little tip to hand to them. It's just heartbreaking. Yeah, this is my favorite scene of the show, uh, where they um, rib him back uh, for the way he treated him earlier, but then turn around and make him one of the guys. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> the um, And it seems like they had that little, like, you know, one eighth of a hot dog set up, but you know, they, they were prepared for this moment. And so they, um, they show him how it feels to be the victim of stinginess. And then they model generosity for him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think that's just, you know, they're like, it's part of the whole process of teaching Charles to be a decent guy. 
And, um, and I, and I think it's great. And it is a one of the guys moment. I wrote, wrote down the same thing in my notes. And, and you talk about how, how good those hot dogs look and how you can almost smell them. So we watched this, the, I watched this three times in prep and, and, uh, the first time was several days ago. And so Saturday night, my wife's like, Hey, what do you think about having hot dogs for supper? <laughs> so I seized on that. I've never been to Toledo, but I've been to Chicago and I love Chicago style dog. So I like the fixings we didn't have. We went to the store and got, and, and we had Chicago dogs. <laughs> nice. That's great. That's fantastic. Yeah. I, I, I totally agree that it's, it's, it's a wonderful get back at Charles, but then our, there are heroes and they do the nice thing and they, they're like, Charles, Charles, Charles. And they give them the whole one, you know, it's very sweet. And, you know, it's like, and it's, they're exactly the kind of guys that you would want. It makes me miss uh radar. Radar's not in this episode at all. He's missing yes. a really great meal here. Unfortunately, um, it's a shame. Colonel Potter can't be invited, but I mean, he can't have the whole cast in on this episode. Um, but again, it's very sweet of Klinger. To share oh, yeah. this with the guys. I mean, I don't know. I mean, if I get sent a whole box of hot dogs from my, from my hometown place, I don't know. I don't know if I'd share them. Maybe that means I'm a terrible person, but I'd be like, this is, this is the best meal I'm going to eat. I think I'm going to make this last. But again, Klinger's a, Klinger's a really nice guy and he, he shares it with his buddy. So it's a terrific end scene for this episode. Yeah. He shares it with the, the, um, the doctor who pointed, um, him at Danker, who, who, you know, because I, I imagine Hawkeye told him, "Hey, there's a there's a guy in post op you're going to go want to go talk to." So now that that came off as very believable to me, and like you said, very very kind and thoughtful of Klinger. Yeah, it's a terrific show. I again, I love it's the I think the uh, the A plot is great and the B plot is great. Okay, and there's kind of like a B and C, and then they, they sort of merge the two at the end here. Uh, but I just think it's an absolutely terrific episode. I, I love Charles Aben's performance. I think it's got kind of some new colors to shine on Hawkeye. It's got some great gags in it. And so it end up, ends up being like one of my favorites from season six, guys. So I absolutely love it. So um, as we're wrapping up here, I want to ask you both. Joe, I'll start with you. Do you have a favorite line or joke from the episode? My favorite uh, part of it was uh, the sick of Margaret, where, you know, we know she's a great drunk. But what I saw is great, but she plays a great sick character as well. We ate a rotten bird. <laughs> uh, Captain, what about you? Yeah. So, so my favorite line was from the same scene and it's just a dumb Groucho Mark style joke, but, it, but I'm, you know, I'm a dad. So it's dad humor. And I like that sort of thing. When, when they say that Winchester's on the floor and Hawkeye says he can't operate from there, his arms aren't long enough. <laughs> I love the way he says it too. Like he kind of, it's, it's like, it's kind of goes on while other people are talking. So it's just kind of an aside a little. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that is a great, that is a very Groucho Marxian kind of joke. And it is, I didn't mention it because it is very funny. Uh, actually my favorite joke and I purposely, as I do, I left it out of the synopsis because I wanted to quote it here. My favorite line, my favorite joke of the whole episode is the final line of the show where they give Winchester the hot dog. And he immediately starts chowing down on it. And they're like, whoa, 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 save some for Margaret. And he kind of pauses, thinks about it. And then he picks up that little <laughs> one eighth and he just goes, uh, this is for Margaret. 
yes. the old person to laugh there. I feel bad for Margaret, but it's a great moment that, as you say, he's one, he's, at least for this moment, he's one of the guys. You know, he's one. This is not a moment they could ever have with Frank Burns because no. he would never be able to appreciate it. And it's just, it's great. I love that he, you know, he knows he, that's funny and they think it's funny and it seems genuine. And it's a great laugh line to go out on the ups. Very rarely in MASH is to me the funniest line, the absolute last line of the episode. But in this case, it is. And I just, I wish I could, even again, I don't eat hot dogs, but I wish I could sit there and just sit and eat with these guys because it just looks like such a wonderfully fun moment. That is the Grim Reaper. As I said, it's an absolutely terrific show. Uh, really to me, one of the standouts of, of season six. So uh Major Joe and, and Captain Entropy, as we're wrapping up here, is there anything else we want to say about it before we before we wrap up here? Uh just that I'm hungry. I didn't get much of a supper tonight. So <laughs> if we have any leftover dogs. <laughs> yeah, Sounds good. I too am hungry. I'm gonna be grabbing dinner uh once we finish up. <laughs> All right, we'll wrap it up so you guys can get some food in you for God's sake. So well both of you Thank you so much for coming back. I really appreciate it because you've both been on the show before and I was really happy to be able to pair you both up and we could talk about some your military experiences and stuff. And so I thought this would be a good one to do. So good. Thank you both very much for, for coming back and talking about this episode with me. It was terrific. Sorry, thank you for having uh, having us back. Yeah, um, thank you for doing this. It was great to be paired up with Major Joe. I, I hardly ever say this to the mostly soldiers that I work with on a daily basis now, but I do enjoy the Army Air Force team. Oh, yes. <laughs> well, I work for the Air Force now, and I also enjoy the Army Air Force team. Outstanding. All right. So, again, thank you both for doing this. I really appreciate it. And thank you all for listening. Of course, you can find all the back episodes of MASHCast on our website, findwaterpodcast.com. You can subscribe to the show on any podcatcher of your choice. We're always talking MASH over on Twitter at MASH477Cast. And then finally, if you want to support the Fine Water Podcast Network, just go to patreon.com slash fwpodcast, and there you can unlock various rewards, uh, one of which is to be name-checked on a show of your choice. So a big salute to Daniel Ulrich, Nicholas Prom, Russell Burbage, Stan Peel, Mike Thomas, Joe Perino, Billy Shulman, Dennis Bailey, Kara Kay, Tim English, Adam Ackerman, Lisa P., Laura Braun, Stefan Van Skyke, David Mann, and Michael Kelly. Thanks so much, everybody. So that's going to do it. We'll be back for another episode soon. But until then, that is all. How can I do such a dumb thing? I give up. How? You know what gets to me is I let him get to me. I actually pushed him. He just may have a case. I'd say open and shut. You know you'd make a hell of a witness for the prosecution? You're going to make a better one.